in the e-commerce space, you have extremely sophisticated buyers. Most of them are Stanford and other esteemed universities with financial degrees. And then you have regular founders, people that build a brand out of their garage or their spare bedroom. And then suddenly they are approached for millions of dollars of businesses. And that knowledge gap doesn't provide for a fair and level playing field. Today's sponsor is Eva, the best AI repricer for Amazon profits. Private label sellers, are you wasting your cash? Eva reprices your products for you, and the result is up to 50% more profits. Eva serves hundreds of seven-figure sellers in the USA and is now out for British and European sellers as well. For a 15-day free trial, go to amazingfba.com forward slash Eva. That's amazingfba.com forward slash E-V-A. Ladles and jelly spoons, boys and girls, welcome back to the 10K Collective Podcast, the place to be for six, seven and eight figure Amazon sellers, also for broader e-commerce sellers these days, but Amazon is still our focus, part of the amazing FBA family. Today, we're talking to Klaus Rosenberg-Gotthardt from Epic Partners. Klaus is the founding partner and CEO of Epic Partners, which is an M&A advisory firm specialized in e-commerce. And what we're going to talk about today is the realities and some of the kinks in the M&A process, i.e. when you sell your business. All is not necessarily what it might seem on paper, and we're going to help you guide you through those rapids. So first of all, class, warm welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Michael. And really the origin for, for me to launch Epic Partners is that first and foremost, I'm a founder myself. I've, I've been an entrepreneur for well over 30 years. I have launched a number of businesses. I have experienced spectacular failures and award-winning, but I've also sold uh, three of my own businesses. and. When I saw what happened in the e-commerce space and this aggregation and there's a roll-up uh, starting to happen, it got me a little bit worried um, because in this in, in a normal M&A space, let's say in a normal business center, the buyer and the seller would be knowing roughly what's going on here and what's going to happen. But in the e-commerce space, you have extremely sophisticated buyers, or most of them out of Stanford and other esteemed um, universities with, with financial degrees. And then you have regular founders, people that build a brand out of their garage or their spare bedroom. And then suddenly they are getting, you know, approached for millions of dollars of businesses or euros or pounds. And that knowledge gap doesn't provide for a fair and level playing field. So we are helping these founders. We are serving these founders level that playing field of knowledge, experience, and giving them a, a fair value and a fair business. Because like you just said in your introduction, it's not always as rosy and easy as, as it's portrayed by the buyer. Yes, they're not trying to be dishonest or bad or treat people badly, but they have a business to run and they are going to try to run it in a way that means they maximize their uh, income and their return on investment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which means they expect you to protect yourself. They're not out there to protect you. And that kind of makes sense. So let's get into this. The first thing, let's talk about the places where people make mistakes, the entrepreneurs, the sellers themselves. What are the big mistakes that they made when they go into a selling situation? I think the first thing that goes wrong is before those steps you just mentioned here. Right. Because when you, first of all, there's a whole uh, conundrum of should I sell or shouldn't I sell? This is your baby. This is something that you have gone through. So one day it sounds like a good idea. And the next day it sounds like a really stupid idea to sell your business. The first thing is get yourself and your partners, your spouse, your business people, 
get yourself all aligned that we are going to do this because there's nothing worse than coming further down the line with, with a potential buy and then not the entire team of shareholders and founders and everything is on board with this and agreeing with this. So first of all, make sure that the stakeholders are aligned here, that we are going to do this. And then before you even approach potential uh, acquirers, be that aggregators or through a broker, you need to have a look at your books and your bookkeeping because very often, and there's nothing wrong in that everyone does it, you will tend to load your P&L with private expenses or other expenditures to lower your corporate income tax. And, and that's just fair enough, but it's just in a world where every hundred thousand is all half a million in exit value, it can become quite expensive that you have loaded in an extra car and a salary for your wife's sister, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. So, yeah. and, and you did that out of purely an operational benefits. You have your own company. You can do, you can do whatever you want. You are the own boss, et cetera. And that's great. But in an exit scenario, buyer is always paying for the ability to make money. And, and if you are not there any longer, and some of these expenses are not there any longer, you might, you should address this and show this as, Hey, here's a hundred K it went for this. So it's not really an expense. Align your stakeholders and get your finances reviewed by, um, either an accountant or with a broker and advisor that could say, Hey, what are these, what are these lines in your P and L? Is that something we can turn into what we call an adjusted beta or, uh, in this space, we call it SDE, sellers discretionary earning. I was going to say, or add backs as well. So in other words, whoever buys the business isn't going to be employing your wife and your sister and whoever else you could put in the books. They won't have that cost. Therefore, you can add exactly. it back in. Um, in. In the first instance, when you approach, if you make the approach directly, uh, you know, salespeople, so they would like to portray this as good as possible. So they might come out and say, well, my, you know, a min in adjusted and the, and the potential buy would that as sort of fame and will run with it and will make you potentially an LOI, letter of interest or letter of intent. Um, you know, when you, uh, you know, hood and it's suddenly not a million, but it's 800 or 700 because, you know, you were a little bit optimistic in your earnings, et cetera. That just, okay. Then, you know, you have to remember these people come in and they're buying your ability to make money. And if it was not that good, but it was something less then they will definitely scrutinize more. So be realistic. Um, it's, it's okay to, to create and you should do that, but don't, uh, portray your ability to much really, you know, it will be a, a little bit of kill of it. What strikes me is that actually it's all about selling and it's all about selling something on the one hand and what the buyer experiences on the other hand. And if on an Amazon listing, you claim your product will cure psoriasis or cure acne or whatever claim you make for it. First of all, there's some legal issues that can come and that can be true if you're selling a business. If you claim A, but it's only C grade, then you'll get very disappointed buyers. Equally, I guess if you make exaggerated claims about your business as a whole, which is the thing you're packaging up and selling to somebody else, going to have the same effect on the trust. And the difference being an Amazon buyer can leave you rude reviews instantly, but they can't also go and examine your business. Whereas I guess somebody who's buying your business is going to be looking at it with a forensic level of detail, mm -hmm. like a bit to a detective or something. So what are the other things you're going with the, the gap between claims and reality? When you, there you put, you put your, this letter LOIs, um, and it, those are very stipulating the, the general terms of a potential bill. Um, and very, very often there's an area and what sellers has to be aware then you know, and not allows. Um, so 
be very cool, uh, to sign LOIs that had exclusivity terms in them. Exclusivity should come at a much later stage, maybe where, you know, where, you know, they have already had, you know, a little bit of, and maybe, you know, what we data room, um, we, we give people access to it, said, right? They can have a look at the business and the numbers, et cetera, but we don't give exclusivity because we, it's our job to find the best deal for this. For these founders, and so if they're doing it themselves, they should do the same thing. They should try to avoid exclusivity because it doesn't really it ties you up to to someone for six weeks, where you up to someone else, and you know some acquisition. You know they are just looking what is out there, and you know getting to know their margins and the earth, and, and this is a good business or not. And then six weeks later, saying no, thank you uh, for various reasons. But but you as a seller just lost six weeks. What we're talking about there is the ways that the, the buyers can uh, cause problems. There's certainly lots of ways that aggregators or even trade buyers could cause problems. So let's talk a bit more about the ways that we screw ourselves up as the business owners. What are the other things people can I get mean, of you know fake review uh, operations and stuff that you know stuffs your with you know in which into many operations like you have had under many times. Um, it's just not good practice. A buyer finds that software to look for this and they have you know it's part of the due diligence you write it in their offer that they do not work with fake review um how frustrated review and ranking in the beginning um please uh, you know don't and use some missions where you black hat operation where you're getting a ton of reviews it is a suspension risk i mean i've had clients who've got suspended over policy violations so that's normally the nastiest one isn't it as opposed to the numbers and I would say uh, review manipulations right up there. And that's because, again, it affects the relationship of trust. A lot of these things seem to be re resolving back to that. Amazon buyers trust Amazon, and that's why they keep coming back there in a lot of numbers and why the conversion rates are so high. And Amazon wants to keep that relationship. So it, it makes sense that they would take that pretty seriously. And it therefore makes sense that the people buying businesses yep. that work on that platform should take that seriously as well. And by the way, I would say, here's the interesting thing about preparing to sell. It's what I would say to anyone, even if you don't have any intention of selling in your entire lifetime. I would say whoever owns it in future does not want suspension risk hanging over it. So even if you never sell your business, you still shouldn't be doing the same things. But it, 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 I guess when somebody's going to investigate it, it becomes a, a more sharp, acute problem. But I think it was a chronic problem before. Just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it isn't there you know, as a risk. In terms of other things, and then now we comes into sort of the personal, the, the role play here of the buy-in, the sell and the negotiations. I'm a founder myself, and as these founders, that businesses, you put a lot of love and a lot of your personality in this brand. So when it comes to these negotiations, founders tend to take it very personal. And, and that's the problem here. And, and that's why it's not to just to flower my own cake here, but to have it a third party in between is actually where it is also very important because it gets very personal. And so when there is a pushback from the buyer in the process of negotiation, founders, of course, take this personal and that can become a very hard no or a hard stop when it shouldn't be. Okay, you were running a lot of your marketing expenses over your personal credit card and we find out. So let's just address the ACOS. What is it really? People take that as a personal insult that you looked into their private credit cards. But let's look at it. It was not disclosed. You know, I'm just giving a, a hypothetical example here. But and it becomes personal. The founders have to really, really consider that it is business. Okay. And for the buyers, just like you said, it is business. For them, it's about to acquiring a business. 
as cheap as possible with the highest percentage of greater return than average. And so for them, it is about buying a good business as cheap as you can. And, and for the buyer, it's also business. So this having your personal ego uh, in it can sometimes be quite damaging. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that people hire lawyers to defend them in court. So there is something about the objectivity of somebody whose job it is to represent you. The obvious question that arises is, do I really need to give a business broker a percentage of my money, which is not quite the same topic we've been talking about, but it comes up, doesn't it? Because you're going to give them, what, 5 10%, maybe even more of the deal. That feels like a massive chunk. Is it not easier for people to educate themselves about how to sell their business than to hire an expensive broker? I'm obviously biased, but I have also, I have sold own businesses. And to be honest, there is so many things. There is the tax, there is law, there is, there is the negotiation part that I talked about. There are so many things. Yes, you could study for it and you could read up on it, but you are never going to be able to, to do it as good a job as a professional will do here. There's very few people that is selling their house directly. And that's for a reason. This is even bigger as a bigger asset event of your life. It's the biggest asset event of your life, most properly selling your business. You need to surround yourself with the best people, the best advice. And very often, these people make you the money back. I'm not going out and promising that I will get you those five, six, seven percent that, that it costs to use a professional advisor more. But we do get that very often. We do see that we are paying ourselves back. Because a direct negotiation with an uh, acquirer, especially if it's the aggregator, they would only look at your trading 12. So they would only look at what have you done and how have your abilities been the last 12 months, which is a bit unfair if you are at a high growth trajectory. We should take in potential future growth and earnings. So it's our role as an advisor here to say, okay, let's do some financial forecasting. Let's find out what is a fair number to play, not just on the trading 12, but actually uh, also looking a little bit into the focus. So there are so many moving parts in selling your business that I just want to say, please don't try and do this alone. And, but if you do, if you do not want to work with a buyer, educate yourself, read up on blogs and et cetera. There's tons of educational material out there. What we're doing here in a podcast is tell people how to do stuff themselves or perhaps how the process works. And then if they choose to work with an expert, they could choose to hire somebody understanding the process a bit more. I, I think either which way you should understand what you're doing, even if you're hiring somebody. Again, during negotiations, the, the way that payment is being done will come up at some point. And an acquirer will, of course, try to pay as little right now and pay more later. And just for what is being paid later is out of money because it's your business that they are using to pay you from. Be very careful on what is called the earnout. There is one what's called cash at closing. So that is when the documents are signed, the business is handed over, whether it's in assets or in shares. And then there is very often an earnout period, which is fair enough. The new owner will come in and, and if it's a shared deal, that means everything that has happened in the past is now on their shoulders. So they might actually want to have a stability amount that is blocked for potential legality and legal cases, unpaid VAT taxes, et cetera, et cetera. But also there will be a payout for how well the business is performing when they are now owning it. So look out for as large a cash at closing uh, and as little earnout and as little stability uh, fund as possible. In all fairness, again, if the buyer wants to see a percent because during their due diligence, they found irregularities with tax filings and I don't know what, then you have to understand that it's maybe fair enough that they ask for this. 
It's not that you're not going to get these money. They just want to have this money blocked for potential things that comes up once they are now the owners of the business. Uh, and again, here, it can become very personal. People take it personal. Are you telling me that I didn't do my stuff right and now you want to block so much money? We haven't even signed yet and it can always become already quite grubby here. I can imagine also that the savvy negotiator knows when to feign anger or to just walk away and say, this is ridiculous, walk out of the room. And there's lots of famous um, movies about negotiation, a lot of which is probably nonsense because the good negotiators are probably much more diplomatic and that doesn't make for very good movies. But on the other hand, there probably is a moment where you should walk out the door and say, I don't believe you don't trust me. I'm going to take the deal to person X. What are the other mistakes that people make around the deals? The thing with the earnout is maybe it's not a mistake, it's just a risk. There's a risk kicking because now you're no longer running the business. They are, the new owner is running this. And, and of course they want to grow the business. So something could end that they are not running it as you did, or they're not having the growth that was expected for you to get these earnouts. Whatever is tied up in, in that earnout period comes with a risk. We very often see that everything is being paid. The company has been grown 20, 25% in the first quarters or two quarters, and therefore the whole earnout is being paid out. I'm just saying that those money are being marked with a, with a kind of a risk and the asterisks around it. Now, there's another thing that came up the other day that I think somebody from one of the aggregators out there I was interviewing was saying that a lot of earnout structures are on profit. And of course, there is a conflict between the needs of a business acquirer who wants to grow a business quickly versus the wishes of an earner if you have that structure. Because of course, as you pointed out, and I hadn't really thought this one through, but it made sense that if you want to grow something, you first need to invest in it. That normally means you're trying to grow revenue. When people talk about growing a business, normally what they mean is growing the revenue, right? To start with the hope that the profit follows afterwards. And therefore, if you're putting a lot of resources, overheads at something, maybe you're more aggressive on PPC, that sort of thing, that actually the profit might be lower. So if you've got an earn out by some percentage of profits, that could actually be less than you used to have, or at least not grow. Whereas an earn out based on revenue is wiser. So what are your thoughts about that? What do we need to look out for? No, absolutely right. The, the buyer will come in and very often we see brands wanting to sell or founders wanting to sell because they are maybe growing 50 or 100%. But if you only have 20, 30% margin, you're never taking money off the table. So they are actually coming to the table to sell because they are a bit, you know, tired of always, you know, never taking the, you know, chips off the table and just keep growing and maybe not having access to that excess growth capital. So here comes an acquirer, right? and they have all the money in the world, so to speak, and they can put in all that money to grow your company, which is, of course, what you would like to see, but it does make that dip in earnings 100% because they would like to see revenue growth 25, 30% in the first two quarters or something like that. It's part of a requirement from the people that lends them the money. These credit lines that aggregators are getting are not cheap. They're quite often in the high, in the mid teens early teens, mid-teens of interest rates. If you are buying a business, you paid 5x, 6x for it. You have your own overhead as an aggregator. If you don't grow the business, you will not make the money to pay for the coupons once you need to start paying for that loan. So it's very important that you grow the business very, very fast. Just plowing money into PPC and, and optimization, maybe opening a couple of new marketplaces, because that's also cost a lot of money. That's sunken cost there. It will, it will take some time before you see that back as, as earnings. What would your advice to a seller be? Get a percentage of revenue rather than a percentage of profit? And would you just walk away from the deal if they say a percentage of profit or would there be some nuance? There could be nuances to it. Of course, it depends on the time frame. 
If it's two quarters on earnings, I think you're going to short sell yourself because there's a very risk. But it also depends on what is used as what the base of growing from. So you make sure that there's a clarity, the definitions of this is the earnings base we are having now. This is the earnings base, whether it's in the monetary numbers or in percentages um, that we are going to pay out on in two or three quarters from now on. It's just risky to go for the earnings. But of, and of course, as a buyer, earnings is important to them. So that's my make most probably what they're going to suggest. Of course. I suppose you've got a long enough time frame, like sometimes earnouts can be for two years. I guess if they invest very aggressively for the first six months and profits drip, you should see that come back. But I can certainly see if you've got an earnings based on the wrong starting point and then it's profits and it's only for six months that really there isn't going to be much increase in profits there. I can really see that as well. Another operational thing that you've mentioned to me before was uh, the supply chain side. Obviously, a lot of us just do what we do every month, every quarter, whatever, and we get on with it. And we don't think too much about paperwork to do with that. We just make sure that the price is right and the goods are good. And, and goodness knows it's hard enough to negotiate a good price and good quality. But are there issues there that we, we need to be wary of cleaning up as the seller? One thing that we have seen is that if you're having a unique product, we are very often here talking about unique brands, brand owners themselves, which is manufactured at a factory somewhere. It could be Europe, could be Asia, could be anywhere. And ensuring that you have an exclusivity with that factory, that this they are only making this for you and protecting your, your IP. If you have invented something new, if it's just a sign pattern, a design pattern is better than nothing. But if you can get a utility pattern, if you have invented something new, go the full mile and get a utility pattern on it. It is so useful and so valuable in an exit scenario that you can show that your products, your design, your branding, all this is protected by, by IP uh, law. Do it in China, do it in Europe, do it in the US if you can. Yeah. And by the way, people give up on China. I'm obviously not a lawyer, nor do I play one on the internet. But my understanding is that there are multiple provinces of China now where a lot of manufacturing is done that do actually have pretty strong intellectual property laws. You certainly need to talk to some very good quality lawyers to get it done. But I would say don't give up on IP within China, but in Chinese with a proper Chinese lawyer who is enforceable in Chinese courts. And then also, yes, as you say, US, Europe, you can always look at WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization. Again, I'm not a lawyer. This is a precursor to you going talking to a lawyer. Do not take my legal advice. I'm not qualified. But I think you're right. This is one of those things that actually, weirdly enough, feels complex. But if you get an expert involved, it, it can be time consuming and expensive, but actually relatively straightforward. I think that's a great selling point that people miss. So again, it strikes me the process of preparing to sell is basically a way of fine tuning your business, whatever happens next, actually. I, ha I have an example of uh, someone in the fitness industry that being blatantly copied, even the pictures of himself are on dozens and dozens of Chinese sites. And the product, of course, has nothing in you know, relation to the quality and the product, but they're, even, they're just blatantly copying. But so with this uh, pattern, whether it's a design pattern or utility pattern and have it in registered with Amazon, it's almost with bottom that he moves these sellers. He can show us one day that there's like 30, 30 stores that are copying him and having his own pictures on their site. And with the click of a button next week, it's, or it's even sometimes in days, it doesn't take that long for Amazon. They're pretty good at this stuff now. It's down to five. And then you just, you know, hammer it out harder on those five and then they're gone. So. Do the work, protect yourself. It's going to pay itself back multiple times in an exit scenario. Or if your kids are going to take it over or somebody, protect yourself. Absolutely. I think 
it's a bit of a startup mentality when you have nothing worth protecting. Yeah, you should just get on with it. Don't stress about IP and intellectual property uh, and protection from everything and everyone all the time. You can get too risk averse. But equally, I think when you've got something worth millions, then the protection piece is worth time, money and effort. Let's wrap up this episode. If we've got time, I'd love to do a quick episode where we can specifically focus on what the buyers are trying to do to trip you up as the seller. But for the moment, you're an, an intermediary, an advisory firm specialised in e-commerce. What is it that you offer people uh, if they want to work with you or, or talk to you? So like I just mentioned, this is a difficult process. It is uh, um, full of loopholes and things that you need to take care of. So we are the advisors, we are serving these founders in the best way, whether it's legally, we are not lawyers, but we will find legal consultants and, and legal counsel that can help you formulate, etc. We will help you, we will argue, we are maybe asking for a higher price. So we are doing all of that. We are working closely with the founders. I, I keep saying the phrase, we are serving them because I have been a founder and I am a founder and I know running your business and then at the same time selling your business, it just doesn't really work. Doing everything that we can for them to have a stress-free deal as possible. Yeah, that sounds good. There's enough stress just in operating these things, isn't there really? That's true. <laughs> um, so I believe you can offer a, a business valuation and a, a free consultation. If people want to uh, take you up on that, what are they going to get and how do they get it? Oh yeah, please do that. First of all, I am more than happy to jump on any call with founders um, and they can just write me directly. It's Klaus, C-L-A-U-S, at Epic with an A-E, partners.com. Uh, maybe you will put it in your show notes. And I say this just because I am getting on that call with everyone. We are not too big and, and founders are just important to us and to me. So I want to speak with everyone. Yeah, that's important. And please do that. Yeah, yeah. That does matter because I know some founders have said to me that they find their they get a fairly sort of unpersonalized service, so we say, from some brokers. They've had that experience and from more than one person I've had that. Yeah, that's good to know. So Epic Partners, by the way, is spelled A-E-P-I-C hyphen P-A-R-T-N-E-R-S dot com. If you're looking for Epic, if you're spelling it the American way, then, you know, actually, well, the British way as well. We don't spell it that way. Hey, A-E-P-I-C. You're going to spend that. <laughs> I hope you bought EpicPartners.com with an E, Klaus, because uh, if not, then let's go and buy that domain. In Danish, we have three letters that they start in any other languages. A, R, and O, which is the A and the E and the O with a dash through and then an A with a with a ball on top. <laughs> and the way you're spelling it, the A, which is like in aesthetics, is uh, it, if you pronounce it, it sounds like epic. So yeah. that's why we chose that. Yeah, name. I got it. So it's a proud Dane. And by the way, that brings us to another simple question, which is, do you deal with people from USA only or Europe only? Or wh where do you deal with people in terms of where the buyers are based and where their businesses are focused? We are that M&A, proper M&A advisory firm. So we deal with global buyers. Be that we have 90 plus aggregators in our database, but we are speaking with hundreds of strategical, we have private equity houses, high net worth individuals, brand groups, etc. So the buyer universe is global and, and so is the seller universe. Whether you're a founder in Delhi that has built an amazing brand and you're selling on Amazon.com, dot com or dot in where wherever we can still serve you as a founder and so uk us europe asia we're dealing with founders from across the globe great that answers that question uh, assume you got a, a bit of time we'll talk about how buyers are out to get us off not necessarily but the things where buyers can cause problems for us is that the humble and and victims here the business owners but for the moment i just want to say uh, thank you very much for coming on the show and uh, for sharing some great uh, insights and some things we need to look out for. Thank you very much, Mike. I really appreciate it. 
Thanks for listening to the 10K Collective podcast for six and seven figure Amazon sellers. I really hope you found the show helpful to you. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave us a quick star rating. It will take you all of 30 seconds to do it, but it does mean we can be found by and help many more e-commerce business builders. I wish you fast and profitable scaling, and I hope you enjoy the process of building your seven-figure Amazon business. Thanks very much for listening.